Season three of Formative is brought to you by the generous support by Macy's Inc., whose purpose is to create a brighter future with bold representation for underrepresented youth so we can realize the full potential of every one of us. Welcome to Formative, the show where today's leaders are interviewed by the leaders of tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in to this season three finale of Formative. Today, we have sportscaster John Chandler. 25 years ago, he came into his career through a deep love of sports. We're excited to hear about the highlights and challenges of his experience. I'm Rachel Gazdick, CEO of New York Edge, and my co-host today is Cody from 452K, otherwise known as the Frederick Douglass Academy. Hi, Cody. Welcome to today's show. How about you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? My name is Cody. I'm a sixth grader at Frederick Douglass Academy. I have one brother, and my favorite color is red. I will be interviewing Mr. John Chandler, and I'm very excited. Okay, well, we don't want to wait any longer. Let's bring John onto the show. John, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. I can already tell because my <laughs> favorite color is red, and my six year old's favorite color is red. So Cody, why don't you take it away? My first question is, what school did you go to when you were growing up? So I went to a couple of different schools growing up. I grew up in a small town outside of Cleveland, Ohio. It's called Rocky River. And the reason that maybe a lot of New Yorkers might know about Rocky River, Ohio, is that it is the birthplace of George Steinbrenner, AKA the boss, the longtime owner of the New York Yankees, the man responsible for all of those World Series championships in the 90s and into the 2000s. And the guy they called the boss, one of the great personalities in sports, born and raised in Rocky River, Ohio, a couple streets over from where I grew up, obviously a few years <laughs> few years earlier than me. I'm not that old. Okay. <laughs> the town that you grew up, it has a cool name. Rocky River? It, yeah, it does have a cool name, doesn't it? Yeah, it's kind of memorable. Lake Erie kind of feels like the ocean when you're standing right next to it and can't see the other side of it. So we grew up on the water there on the lakefront. It's a fun place. Okay. And my second question is, the first time you went on national television, were you nervous at all? Oh, gosh. So I've been doing this for going back to college almost 25 years because I was on TV when I was in college. And I am 44 years old and I still get nervous. I was on television yesterday. I was on recording, not even live. I was on recording audio tracks five minutes before I came onto this podcast and I was nervous. I get this little feeling in my stomach and a little lump in my throat right before I go on TV. I'm kind of shy to begin with. I didn't know that I wanted to be on TV or radio or on the air because I was always kind of the introvert who kept to himself in class, in school. And so I think feeling that nervousness before I go on TV every time, just like it's the first time, lets me know that I still care, right? I care so much about getting it right and doing a good job that I think that's where that nervousness comes from. And so I guess when I stop feeling that nervousness, it'll be time to find something else to do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm going to stop feeling that anytime soon. It's a, it's a weird feeling. It feels a little bit like, like you, you feel like you want to throw up 
before you step into the studio because you know you're about to go talk to thousands, maybe millions of people through a camera lens, but it's kind of a rush too. That's how I was feeling, waiting to come meet you. Okay, that's cool. So we feel the same way. Let me tell you, but it's a good feeling because that, to me, that means you care. To me, that means that you want to do a good job. You want to do the best job you can. And it's because you're thinking about that job that you want to do. You're thinking about what to do and how to do it and how to do it right. And so it's, I don't know, I always felt like it's my body telling me, okay, focus, take a deep breath and let's get the job done. Was your dream always to be a sports anchor? So yes and no. When I was in fourth grade, I really wanted to be a bus driver or a truck driver because I loved big buses and trucks and I thought it would be really cool. And, you know, I always loved sports. I loved playing sports. I was in the yard all the time with my brother playing sports and with the kids down the street playing sports. I wasn't very good at sports. (laughs) I'm just going to be perfectly honest. Like my brother might've been like the MVP of every team that he's ever played for going back to third grade. I was not, I was the last guy picked. I had fun playing. But when I got into high school, especially, I just knew I wasn't as good as the other kids, even if I did practice hard, just wasn't there for me. So sports casting and sports journalism was a way to stay involved with something and stay passionate about something that I really cared so much about. If you wanted to find me on the weekends, figure out what college or pro football game was on, and I'd probably be sitting in front of it and watching it or finding a way to go to it. Or, you know, in the summertime, it was always, you know, we grew up going to Cleveland Indians games when you could get bleacher seats for $4. That's cheap compared to now. That's cheap. Let me tell you, that was a deal. And the cool thing about Indians games, well, they weren't very good in the 80s. So I I was actually a Mets fan as a kid too, because the Mets were really good with Kevin Mitchell and Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden, Gary Carter at catcher. Those Mets teams were amazing. They won the World Series in 1986 over the Red Sox, and they were so much fun to watch. And my Cleveland Indians were not fun to watch. They were a really bad team (laughs) that didn't win a lot of games. It it was an 80,000 seat stadium and there'd be like 2000 people there. So think about how many kids are in your class? 28 going on to 30. 28 to 30. Okay. So think about if like two kids were in your class and there were all these empty seats, right? And if you were sitting way in the back, the teacher would probably be like, okay, why don't you move on up to the front, right? So that's what they would do at Indians games. We would sit in the bleachers for $4 and we'd be in the upper deck and way in the back. And by like the second or third inning, the ushers would come over and be like, you guys want to move down to the front, sit behind the dugout? Because we need to fill these seats in a little bit. That sounds great to me. That was cool. I got to see a lot of cool baseball as a kid. And then eventually Cleveland became really good and into the World Series in 1995. By then, I really knew that's what I wanted to do. And when I got to Boston, you know, I knew I wanted to major in journalism. I loved to write. And so I just kind of had to figure out what path it was I wanted to take to be able to write. And I kind of fell in love with being able to take video in filmmaking and marry that with the words that I've written and bring that together to tell a story. I thought broadcast journalism was a really cool way to do it. And, you know, I also, I will tell you, I had my uncle growing up in Cleveland was a sportscaster. He was a sports anchor at the ABC station in Cleveland. He was also the radio voice of the Indians and then eventually the Cleveland Browns in football. I knew that I wanted to follow in his footsteps. You know, he kind of put the bug in my ear that, hey, you can still love sports and be a part of sports without actually playing 
sports that way. So, so that, that's what kind of sent me off to college with that path. And then once I got to college, it was a matter of, you know, just try and find your way, figure out what you want to do. So he basically just started you off on everything. He did. Yeah, no, he really did. And to this day, some of the conversations that I got to have with him, just, you know, getting a call from Uncle Nev saying, hey, come on over, I'm going to fire up the grill. (laughs) And then going over there and getting to talk with him. And especially now that he's been gone almost 30 years, I I don't go a day without thinking about him and thinking about lessons that I learned from him and those conversations. I feel pretty pretty blessed to have had the time that I had with him. And I hope that in some small part, I'm kind of keeping his legacy and his life alive all these years later by doing what we do. I say we and not I, because I kind of carry him with me through... uh, through my my career. See, now look at this. We're three questions in and you've already got me. I'm re- I'm starting to tear up now. I'm getting emotional, man. You're a good interviewer. Thank this you. This is really good. That's that's the good stuff. Man, that's how you know if you can get emotion out of somebody when you're asking your questions and you ask good follow-up questions. That's you're off to a great start. That's great. You got me. What's your current favorite sports team? Oh, man. So All right. I'm going to answer this a couple different ways. First of all, Mets fans like to tweet at me that I don't like the Mets. And Yankees fans sometimes say the same thing that I don't like the Yankees. And Rangers fans will say, why do you like the Islanders so much? And Devils fans are like, you like the Rangers and the Islanders more than you like the Devils and Knicks and Nets. It just continues on and on. Right. And it's because the truth is I don't root for or against any of New York's teams other than I want everybody to succeed. I want everybody to win, right? Because it's more fun when you're covering a winning team. I want to see players be great, you know, regardless of what team they play for. And I want to see fans cheering and enjoying themselves and having fun. And, you know, when a team's losing, like I covered the Cleveland Browns in the early 2000s when they didn't win a lot of football games. (laughs) And it was frustrating. And if you really want to know what team I love more than anything in the world, it's the Cleveland Browns. Because that's what I grew up, you know, around. Football is a very big deal in Ohio. And, you know, it's the birthplace of football. It's where the Pro Football Hall of Fame is. Like my high school would get tens of thousands of people at games on Friday nights and Saturday nights. It's a passion. So first and foremost, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. But more than anything in this business, I've become a fan of great moments and great players and great teams and just seeing amazing things. So I kind of root for stories more than I root for teams, right? And objectively, when you're covering a sport, you're really not supposed to be rooting you know, one way or the other. You're supposed to be objective. You're supposed to just report what you see and keep it right down the middle, right? Because you, you don't want to appear to be biased or favoring one story over the other, because that's not really the responsibility of a journalist. So if I'm rooting for anything, covering teams and covering games and covering players, I'm just rooting for everyone to do well, because at the end of the day, we're all human. And that's what I want. You know, I love a good story and just a great moment. Like Aaron Judge hitting his 62nd home run. That was a great moment. So you're staying close to home, but staying professional. Yes, that's exactly right. That's a great way to put it. Yes, you know, you, at the end of the day, you got to stay professional. And and I think sometimes players and coaches understand that. Sometimes fans understand that. What's fan short for? Fanatic, right? So fans are fanatical about their home teams, like we all are. One of the hardest things in my career was covering the Cleveland Browns because I cared so much about them. And I lived and died with every time they won or they lost, right? 
like it was everything to me. And so when I'm covering that team and I'm seeing the things that are going wrong and having to report on that, like it, oh, it tore me apart. <laughs> it was really, really hard. You know, I had to remember that my job, first and foremost, wasn't to root for the team. My job was to ask questions of the players and the coaches and to get the truth about what was going on with that team because the fans also care about that and they deserve that. So at the end of the day, my job as a professional is to kind of serve the fans, you know? I try to take you along the ride to places that you don't necessarily get to go to. And I try to bring you in that moment and make you feel like you're with me in Toronto when Aaron Judge hits his 61st home run, or you're with me in Arlington, Texas, when that ball lands a section below me in the stands and Aaron Judge has hit his 62nd home run. You know, I'm lucky enough to get to see those moments and experience those moments. And I want to bring you along for the ride. Have you ever covered something other like politics wise? So that's a really good question. Yes, I have. Politics is a lot like sports in that you have sides that are very, very they come back to the word fanatical, right? Like kind of really passionate about what they believe, like the way fans are passionate about their home teams. I was in college in Boston and that was around the time of the 2000 presidential race. And so one of my assignments was to go up and cover the New Hampshire primary election that kind of helps set the stage for who is going to get the eventual nomination to become president of the United States. John McCain and George W. Bush and Bill Bradley, Al Gore were all in that race. And it was really exhilarating to be around that. I think if I didn't go into sports, I probably would have gone that route into politics. Part of my job here at NBC is cover politics on the local level. So yes, I'm a sports anchor and a sports reporter, but I kind of look at myself as a journalist first and a little bit of a Swiss army knife. You know what a Swiss army knife is? Are those the knives that unfold? Yes. You unfold them and they have a lot of different tools that can do a lot of different things. And so I try to be someone in our newsroom who can do a lot of different things. And if that's covering news one day or politics one day, and they need me to do that on a day when it's light in sports, I'm happy to do that because you know that's interesting to me. And I know it's important for a lot of people. So I've covered a lot of politics in the city here. I've been lucky enough to interview Mayor de Blasio when he was in office. Mayor Adams, I got to know really well when he was in, in Brooklyn as the borough president. I covered a lot of stories there with him. And so it's nice to see him now at City Hall. There's so much in our daily lives that politicians impact and there's a need to ask questions about them to make sure that things are going on properly and things are getting done and you know communities are heard and people are heard out there. So that's in some ways just as exciting to me as covering sports and covering games. Mm, okay. Yeah. What are the most famous athletes that you've met? Oh, if you work long enough in this business, especially in New York City, you're just going to stumble into meeting some really cool people. And so let me preface this by saying like some of the big names that I've met, very cool, right? But some of the people that you don't maybe know about, but my job is to tell you about and bring their stories to light are some of my favorite stories. So I'll give you two examples. Um, I was lucky enough to have interviewed Kobe Bryant a, a couple of times and Kobe would listen to what your question was. And he's so smart. He would challenge you, you know, like he would listen to your question and he would 
almost ask you questions back. And it was a great give and take I always found with him. You know, he was just really insightful and a smart person. And God, we were lucky to have him on this earth as long as we did. We sure miss him every day, you know. And there was one time I was covering Kobe against the Cavs and LeBron James. And that's another big name that I was lucky enough to get to, to see and experience from his freshman year in high school until today. I was covering a Lakers Cavs game early in LeBron's career. Might've actually been the first time he and Kobe faced off in Cleveland at what was then called Gund Arena. And um, I had gone into the Cavs locker room and talked to LeBron and I needed to get Kobe's reaction. That was part of my story, right? And so I ran out of the Cavs locker room and then it was on the other side of the arena where the visitor's locker room is. And you'll find in these arenas, the visitor's locker rooms are always cramped and tight because, you know, they don't want to make the visitors feel comfortable. Like it's like the home team has like double wide lockers and leather chairs and they've got video games in their lockers and all the food (laughs) spread that you want. Everybody's got sushi and ribs and lobster after the games and all that. And the visitor's locker room, it's like, you're lucky to get a Gatorade and, you know, a half-size locker to (laughs) put your stuff in. So (laughs) the visitor's locker room, I get over there and everybody's cramped and shoulder to shoulder and you got to step over people and they got their bags out because they're ready to get on a a bus that takes them to the airport because these teams fly to their next game in the middle of the night, right? Get in there and I find the Lakers PR person and I said to him, where's Kobe? And he said, no, he's already talked. I'm sorry, you missed him. I'm like, oh no, I need Kobe for this story. He's like, yeah, sorry. And I'm like, well, I was talking to LeBron over there and I, you know, I can't be in two places at once. And I turn around and there's Kobe walking through the locker room and Kobe looks up at me and he said, do you need me? (laughs) I said, do I need you? You're Kobe Bryant. Of course I need you. I said, but you already talked. So it's okay. He said, no, man, I'll do it again. It's fine. Tried not to take too much of his time, but I will never forget that. I will always appreciate that Kobe made the time and understood that I had a story and a job to do in that moment. And, you know, tried to respect him by only asking a couple questions. But at the same time, I was like, I'm interviewing Kobe Bryant and he just made time for me. And this is the coolest thing in the world. So that was fun. I also love when we have the Olympics at NBC and I get to tell stories about athletes that you maybe have never heard of, but then all of a sudden you get to hear about them. And those are some of my favorite stories because you can learn something about people that you didn't already know. Okay. Going to what you were talking about the Olympics, have you ever been to an Olympics game? I have never covered the Olympics in person. And that's something that's like a bucket list thing for me. Like, I really would love to cover an Olympics. I think it would be really cool, right? And we're going to have the Olympics coming to Los Angeles in the near future. It's going to Paris pretty soon. I mean, there's a lot of cool places that you can go and experience different cultures. I mean, that's one of the cool things about the Olympics to me is it's it's sports that you maybe don't necessarily know a lot about. So one of the things that I always try to to look at it as is this is my chance to not only learn for myself, but help my viewers out there and other people who don't know about a sport learn about that sport too. So I think it would be so cool to cover an Olympics. That's a bucket list one. So your job is you're not just covering and talking about it. You're also learning stuff about, yes. about sports. Yeah. You know, that's a great observation by you right there, because I try to learn something new every day right? It's like just continuing education, right? And like every time I open up a newspaper, I'm trying to learn something. Every time I listen to a podcast or go to a game and go into a press conference and ask questions, when I think about those questions that I'm going to ask players or coaches, you know, I always try to make sure I'm asking a question that's 
that's comes from a genuine place of like, I'm really curious because I don't know, you know, I, I, I figure fans are curious about this stuff. And so am I. So, you know, when I covered the Boston Celtics for a few years, Doc Rivers was their coach. I said to him, Doc, I'm going to ask you this, but I didn't play basketball at a high level. So I'm sorry if this sounds like, you know, kind of a dumb question. And he shook his head and waved his hand. He said, no, listen, he said, if you are asking me a question because you genuinely want to know the answer, he says, that's great because that comes from a, a sincere place. And he said, I'll answer those questions all day. So I don't know. That kind of stuck with me. And I figure as long as I'm asking a question that I really do curiously want to know the answer to, it's a good question. Do you have any like signed balls or helmets or anything? Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff back here. I have a basketball that was signed by D Brown, the slam dunk champion and a really good point guard for the Boston Celtics in the nineties. So when I was in seventh grade question mark, he had these Reebok pumps, right? They were high top sneakers. God, I wanted a pair of Reebok pumps so badly. Go look this up after this on YouTube. Okay. And if anyone out there is listening and you don't know who D Brown is, you got to go look it up. It's one of the great dunk contest dunks of all time. This is a dunk contest when like Sean Kemp, you ever heard of Sean Kemp? No. Do you like basketball? Yeah, I do. Okay. Go look up Sean Kemp because Sean Kemp was nasty back in the day. Sean Kemp was a fierce dunker. He was a great, great, great player. And D Brown had just come on the scene and he was all the way at one end of the court and everybody's watching. They're like, what's he going to do? And he bends over and he starts pumping up his Reeboks. They had these little basketball logos on the tongues and you could pump the basketball and it would inflate air into the sneaker, right? And the idea being like, I'm going to air up my sneakers and I'm going to fly now. And so D Brown's pumping up his Reeboks and then takes off down the floor and goes at like about the free throw line, covers his eyes and dunks at home, a blind dunk. And he won the dunk contest. And it's one of the craziest dunks I've ever seen. And from that moment on, I was like, I love D Brown. <laughs> well, when I worked about 10 years ago in the NBA's D League, uh, developmental league, which is now called the G League, D Brown was a head coach in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I was doing play-by-play -play for NBA D League games for NBA.com and NBA TV and got to know D Brown really well. Got to do a coach's show with him every week during a season. And he's one of the nicest, coolest, most down-to-earth, inspirational people. And so when my time was done there and I got this job in New York, I usually don't try to get autographs because I like the interaction with people a lot. And that's really what I value. But I was like, D, can you sign a ball, man? I was a really big fan of yours when I was a kid. So he signed that basketball for me. Um, I've got a Troy Aikman signed football. Aikman was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys and a Bernie Kosar signed football too. Bernie was a quarterback for the Cleveland Browns and one of my favorite players growing up. Have you ever had any moments where you felt like you just wanted to give up on your job? Oh my God. That's a really good question. Yes, 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 yes. It's a really hard industry. Like it's fun. Don't get me wrong. I love this business. But it is a hard business because you're out there in front of people and you got to bring it every day. <laughs> and there's some days when you just don't feel like bringing it, right? <laughs> there's some days when you wake up and it's just, it's not my day. 
and you still got to go and you still got to cover your games and do your stories and file your reports and make your deadline. The one thing that I hate more than anything is missing deadline. And that's true of every journalist, right? We have at the end of the day, deadlines when we have to hit air and it's called slot. So you're slotted in different parts of the show. So let's say I'm talking about the 6 p.m. newscast, right? And I'm slotted to air at 6.03, right? And if I don't make slot for whatever reason, whether the edit of the story took too long or I didn't get the interview that I was supposed to get or I took too long to write or this has happened a million times and it happened to me just the other day where the story changed right at the last second because I got some information that I had been looking for that was very pertinent to the story that needed to get on the air. So, you know, we had to miss slot and we got the story on the air and we got it right, but it still crushes me when I don't make it because I know that means that the producer on the back end and everyone else that's putting the show together has to reorganize things at the last second. And it can be a little chaotic in the control room and you hate to cause that. And you feel like when you do, you want to crawl into a hole and just, you know, disappear from everyone for a while. And, you know, you feel really badly about yourself. So in those moments, yeah, that's where you feel like, oh man, maybe I should be doing something else. But you remember at the end of the day that you love what you do. And the beauty about this job is once it's on the air, it's aired and you got to then just restart for the next day. It's a clean slate and you see what the next day brings. And that's the exciting part that kind of keeps me going every day. Um, like I've, I've had struggles in my career, like anyone in this business has, and that has been hard to get through um, because we are on camera, there's a lot of people judging us. And sometimes your boss isn't going to like you at some places, or sometimes viewers may not like you at some places. And sometimes the job may not go in the direction that you thought it was going to go through no fault of your own. I've had to do some growing and learning and getting better at things. And so, you know, in those moments, I've kind of had to look at myself and say, okay, I made some mistakes here. How can I take those mistakes and learn from them and be better because this is something I still want to do, right? And I just need to make myself a better broadcaster, a better journalist, and be better tomorrow than I was today. And that has kept me going through those moments where it may be kind of tough in this job. Okay. So another question is, have you ever been an actor or did anything other than sports anchoring? No, I no, I've been a play-by-play broadcaster. I've been on the radio, but never an actor. I would really like to write a book someday or books, plural. <laughs> I think that's really hard to do, but I think it would be really cool to do. But acting, now see, that's something that I don't know because it would involve memorizing lines. I guess I guess a little bit of what we do kind of in, in is acting in that you you have you know, lines. We have a story that we've written that a script that we've kind of got to memorize a little bit and then present it. The difference being when you're an actor, you can say cut and do it again. When you're live on television, what's done is done. It's live. It's out there. It's happened. And you got to roll with it. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, there's an energy and an adrenaline rush that comes from that. And I like doing it live. And so that's where I get my most joy. Let me ask you this. What do you think you want to do? I want actually want to become an actor. That's what the whole actor question Really? Is. Why do you want to become an actor? What do you like about acting? I just like it in general. I just like being able to play a role than being able to watch what I do. That's really it. But 
That's cool. With that, you also have to have a backup plan. That is truth right there. Wow. Say it louder for everybody in the back. What would your backup plan be? I might go to a trade school, learn how to build retail, maybe. Smart. Build houses. That was my backup plan. Hmm. My family has built houses going back to my great grandfather. Wow. Yeah. But I used to work on the job sites with my gramps and my dad. And uh, one day gramps pulled me aside, put his arm around my shoulder and he said, son, I don't think this business is meant for you. (laughs) (laughs) So he said, maybe a good backup plan, but I think you should follow your dreams. (laughs) Well, John and Cody, thank you both. John, we ask our guests the same question at the end of every show. Knowing what you know now in life, what advice would you give your 13-year-old self? Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) To listen to mom and dad, first of all, (laughs) and to listen to my teachers and in, in just general, listen, right? And I think, Cody, you did a really good job of that here by asking follow-up questions that told me that you were listening. And that was something I had to learn in my career. Early on, I would write down a list of questions. I had a legal pad and a yellow pad of paper, and I'd write those questions down, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And I didn't deviate from that. I didn't stray from that. I just stuck to the list. And I was so worried about what the next question was that I would sometimes find that I missed things. And I'd go back and I'd listen to the interview and I'd be like, oh, I should have asked a better follow-up question there. I wasn't even listening to the answer because I was worried about what I was going to ask next. And I think you can't really go into life with a bullet point list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or A, B, and C of what you're going to do in life because it never quite unfolds the way that you've scripted it out on that legal pad. And so you have to listen to life. You have to listen to everything around you and to what's happening and to be engaged and ask good questions and be observant and perceptive and understanding of the world around you and how it's changing by the day and how people are affected by different things and and take that and apply it to your life. You have to listen. You have to ask good follow-up questions in life and good follow-up questions of yourself. This is something I set out to do. And then you listen to yourself and everything around you and you say, okay, is this still something I want to do? Do I need to change what I'm trying to do in order to get to where I want to be? That to me is, I think the best advice I would give didn't like to take criticism 13 year old me. (laughs) That was fantastic. Thank you so much. And again, Cody, thanks for co-hosting today. My pleasure. Cody, great questions, man. Thank you. Great questions. Thanks for listening to Formative, a production of New York Edge. I'm your host, Rachel Gastic. My co-host today was Cody from MS452K in Brooklyn. He was assisted by Denise Moulton. Season three of Formative is brought to you by the generous support by Macy's Inc. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. This episode was produced by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Post-production by Alex Brower. Original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Thanks to the whole team here at New York Edge for making this series possible. Never miss an episode of Formative by subscribing to the series at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.